Hey everyone, and welcome to a bonus episode of Blessed Are the Binary Breakers. You might notice that this is not the usual time I put an episode out, but there are binaries that need to be broken right now, so here we are. It is June 2nd, 2020, and the United States is on fire. In the wake of yet more police brutality, particularly the murder of George Floyd, but also of Ahmaud Arbery, of Breonna Taylor, of Tony McDade, and now of David McAtee. The embers of fury and grief that simmer non-stop in the hearts of black folk have ignited into full flame, sending them and those who stand with them into the streets to demand justice. Others take to the holy work of sifting through the lies spread about these protests and broadcasting the truth, to the holy work of paying protesters bail and taking their cases pro bono, to the holy work of supplying protesters with water and masks and bandaging their wounds, and to the holy work of educating ourselves and others. The hearts of these holy workers are ablaze, much as the prophet Jeremiah's was in the scripture shared by Jewish and Christian communities. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, the young prophet is tired of the backlash he faces for speaking a word of God that no one wants to hear. He cries out, I say, I will not mention God or speak God's name anymore. But then... God's message becomes like a fire, burning in my heart, locked up in my bones. I exhaust myself, trying to hold it in, and cannot. Friends, I thank God for hearts set on fire, even though it burns. For fire that keeps us shouting out and acting up, even when the consequences for doing so exhaust us. And I thank God for setting that fire burning, not only in the hearts of those most impacted by police brutality, but even in the hearts of privileged people like me, a white middle-class person. But not everyone's heart is on fire just yet. I keep on seeing my fellow white people saying stuff like, yes, it's a tragedy that a black man died, but that doesn't excuse the riots. Or, it's horrible that another black person was killed, but I don't condone these protests because they keep turning violent. We cannot fight fire with fire. What gets me most is that some of the white people making these comments are my fellow LGBT white people. And I just have to say, what? Are you so disconnected from our history that you don't know that the first pride was a riot? Has no one taught you about the Cooper Donuts riot of Los Angeles, 1959, or the Compton's Cafeteria riot in San Francisco, 1966, or the Stonewall riots of New York, 1969? Do you not know what the police have done and continue to do to our LGBT community? the horrors of police raids on queer spaces that prompted the riots I just named because our people were sick to death of the raiding, 
the humiliating, the physical and sexual violence that police inflicted upon them. One of the ultimate binaries constructed in our world is that of us versus them. When members of our own group are attacked, we show up. When people we think of as them, as other, are attacked, when the safety of us is not threatened, we look the other way or make trite comments about hate cannot fight hate. But it is time we all see that the binary of us versus them is a lie, a wall built up by our shared oppressors to keep us divided, to keep us complacent when those on the other side of this constructed wall are being trampled. Leslie Feinberg notes that divide and conquer is a crude weapon, but it has proven historically effective. That is, right up to the point when people wake up and realize that they have a material need for unity. Now, when discussing the need to break down the binary of us versus them, I am not saying that we all experience equal oppression or that we're all the same, really. No, we have our diverse struggles and our diverse joys our unique gifts and outlooks and cultures and histories, and that is an important thing to remember. But the us-versus-them mentality that needs to die is the one that says that because we are different, we are not intimately intertwined. When the truth is that our liberation is tied up in their liberation, whoever we happen to be and whoever they happen to be. The words that women's rights and civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer spoke are true. Nobody is free until everybody is free. And for a speaker that my fellow white people so love to listen to when he's talking about peace and dreams, and less so when he speaks of activism and justice, Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. It is also imperative for those of us who are white but experience some other form of marginalization to recognize the obvious fact that so many of our fellow trans folks or fellow disabled folks or poor folks or women and so on are people of color. And for them, the oppression we share with them is compounded and multiplied by racism. It's the idea of intersectionality proposed by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. And it means that when I, as a white person, fight for transgender liberation, I cannot do so without also fighting for the liberation of black persons and other people of color, and for class liberation, and for disabled liberation and so on. To liberate every trans person, we have to dismantle all forms of oppression. And that means that I, as a transgender person, must join in the fight being led by black people across the United States right now. Because my liberation is tied up in theirs. And also for the simple fact that they are fellow human beings who deserve dignity, right? For the simple fact that injustice is happening and has been for centuries and needs to end now. 
But if I'm gonna be selfish about it, if I really can't be moved or motivated by any injustice that doesn't directly impact me and my communities, then that's one reason why this discussion about our network of mutuality is important. I owe so much to Jewish, Marxist, transgender activist Leslie Feinberg for helping me understand and articulate why I, as a trans person, must stand in solidarity with Black, Indigenous, people of color, with poor people, with immigrants, and more. I'm going to read an excerpt from Feinberg's book, Transgender Warriors, about realizing how the various oppressed groups of our world share a common enemy that we can only defeat together. Here's the passage. When I was a teenager, during months when I was under siege, I wondered if anyone would ever fight alongside me, as if my battle were their own. What would motivate someone who didn't face the same hatred and abuse to join me as an ally? I owe an enormous debt to Frederick Douglass, the great orator, writer, and abolitionist, for helping me answer that question. As a young adult, I came across this set of questions Douglas had posed. Why am I a slave? Why are some people slaves and others masters? Was there ever a time when this was not so? How did the relations commence? I shivered with recognition. It wasn't that the racism, brutality, and bondage this former slave had endured mirrored my own experiences. No. Yet, his oppression made him burn with questions that sounded so similar to mine. What connects us, Douglas was explaining to me, is that we are up against a common enemy. Douglas was one of 31 men who attended the first women's rights convention at Seneca Falls, New York. All the men, including Douglas, risked being labeled Aunt Nancy men by enemies of women's suffrage. Douglas was the only man to address that convention. We as trans people cannot liberate ourselves alone. No oppressed peoples can. So how and why will others come to our defense? And whom shall we as trans people fight to defend? A few years before he died, Frederick Douglass told the International Council of Women, When I ran away from slavery, it was for myself. When I advocated emancipation, it was for my people. But when I stood up for the rights of women, self was out of the question, and I found a little nobility in the act. I believe this is the only nobility to which we should aspire, that is, to be the best fighters against each other's oppression and in doing so to build links of solidarity and trust that will forge an invincible movement against all forms of injustice and inequality. End quote. That quote that Feinberg cites by Frederick Douglass moves me so deeply when he says that when he stood up for the rights of women, self was out of the question, and so he finally found a little nobility in the act. When I write about talk about, fight for transgender rights, I get a lot of praise. People are constantly telling me how brave I am, how inspired they are by my authenticity. 
but I'm fighting for my community's rights because it's my community, my people, and my liberation. If I put as much energy and time and spirit into fighting for justice for George Floyd, for Sandra Bland, for Ahmaud Arbery, for Trayvon Martin, for Breonna Taylor, for David McAtee, maybe then I will find, as Douglas said, a little nobility in the act. I also look again at what Feinberg said about that women's rights convention that Douglas and 30 other men attended at risk to themselves. Feinberg says that they more or less risked accusations of being gay or trans because of their desire to help women. It's that immature attack of, oh, if you're so interested in women's rights, well, it must be because you are one of them. And I think about how some cisgender straight folks are afraid to speak out for LGBT rights because what if people think that means they're gay? And I also think of how some of my fellow white people are keeping quiet about the protests happening right now, or who avoid publicly agreeing that Black Lives Matter because they know that they will draw the ire or the ridicule of family members and friends. I think about how we don't call out a racist joke, about how men won't comment on a friend's sexist joke because of fear of losing that relationship. But it is a terrible thing for us to avoid a little discomfort or an estranged relationship when black people are losing their lives just because they dare to move about in public or to protest and fight back. So I am going to close this with a prayer from my Catholic tradition. It's a passage from St. Francis of Assisi's Litany of Humility that has long spoken to me in times when I am afraid to speak out for what is right. Like the prophet Jeremiah, who was so tired of speaking out because of the violent backlash he faced in doing so, we could use a little fire in our hearts that burns until we do what is right. We could all use a little courage. And I find that for myself in this prayer. From the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being lied about or defamed, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. My dear friends, I pray that each of you will be galvanized by your God or your gods or simply by the will to do what is right, to keep fighting however you can, to make those in power treat black lives with the dignity they are owed. Our lives are intertwined in ways that the powerful don't want us to know about. My liberation is dependent on yours, is dependent on mine. So get out there, however you are able, whether that's on the front lines at the protests, or by educating your people, or by offering money and supplies. Get out there and break some binaries and be a blessing to the world with your life. Black Lives Matter. <laughs>